great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This episode contains graphic and explicit descriptions of rape and sexual assault. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Emily Doe is the name we will use throughout this episode to refer to the victim. This is how she was referred to in the press during coverage of the incident, the trial, and the aftermath. I really wanted to title this episode Brock the Swimming Rapist, because that's all we heard about at the time. Brock Turner, a Stanford University freshman, a skilled athlete, a competitive swimmer. He was accused of assaulting a woman after a party on the Stanford campus. We heard that news reports of his arrest featured his swim times, which they might have. Turner was a three-time All-American swimmer. It was his skills in the pool that brought him from Ohio to Stanford on a swimming scholarship. While the tales of his aquatic prowess were probably accurate, the charges against him were not, because according to California law, what Brock Turner did to his victim was not technically a rape. Keep that in mind as we review what happened on that night in January 2015, and what happened during the weeks and months after the assault. It's summertime, and if you're like me, you have dozens of pictures on your phone documenting the season. Pictures from barbecues, of friends, the kids, the dogs, and that amazing cocktail you had at the new bar in town. Or maybe your children took dozens of snaps during the family vacation in July, or you took wonderful pictures of your best friend's wedding. Chatbooks.com is the easiest way to create quick, clever, and customized photo books right from your phone. At $8 per book with free shipping in the U.S., you can pull photos from Instagram, Facebook, and the cloud to create a 60-page book with captions, dates, and locations. The app is so easy to use. Best of all, you get your first series book free. That's right. Visit chatbooks.com slash podcast to download the app and use the code GONE at checkout. Order your first series book and customize it to your liking. Soft cover or hardcover? 6x6 or 8x8? Go to chatbooks.com slash podcast to download the Chatbooks app and get your first series book free with promo code GONE. On January 18th, 2015, Emily Doe woke up in the hospital at 4.15 a.m., just hours after the assault. She was on a gurney in the hallway, a deputy standing nearby. As she regained her senses, she noticed dried blood on the backs of her hands and on her forearms. She looked around for her younger sister, and the deputy spoke to her, reassuring her that she was safe, but she'd been assaulted. Emily assumed he had to have her confused with someone else. She asked if she could use the restroom, and he said he would locate a nurse to help her. 
Once she was in the restroom, she pulled down her pants to find her underwear was gone. And at that moment, Emily knew the deputy did not have her confused with someone else. She had been assaulted. Why else would her undergarments be missing? We need to go back to the evening before the assault, to a college graduate who had dinner with her family, accompanied her sister to a frat party, while they joked that she, at 22, would be the oldest one there. Let's go back to Emily's life before Brock Turner. Saturday, January 17th, 2015. Emily and her younger sister, who was in town for the weekend, back from her own college in another part of California, had dinner with their parents. The younger sister had plans that night to go with her friends to attend a frat party on the nearby Stanford University campus. Emily wasn't going to go. Her college days were over. She had a full-time job. She planned to stay home and get to bed at a decent hour. But then, how often is her sister around? How often do the two of them get to hang out? Emily decides to attend the party with her sister. But before they left, they started the night off with some drinks, doing shots of whiskey at home. Their mother would drive them over to the location of the party. When Emily left the house that night, she was wearing boots, a casual dress, and a beige cardigan. Her sister teased her about the cardigan, telling her that she must be ready to party like a librarian. And off they went, Emily and her sister, to a party where Emily would likely be the oldest one there. And the party was loud and crowded and fun. Emily let her guard down. She danced and drank, perhaps a little too much too fast. Her college days were over, and now she rarely drank to excess. That same evening, in a dorm room on the Stanford campus, Brock Turner is also at a party. He's with other members of the swim team. They're drinking beer, and after four or five of them, they do a couple shots of whiskey. The festivities are cut short by a resident advisor who breaks up the party around 11 p.m. Brock and his friends disperse, and as they head out of the dorm, they learn of a party at the Kappa Alpha frat house, and they decide to check it out. While at the party, Turner sees members of the swim team, including older students and the swim team captain. He follows the older students outside, where they find more beer and continue drinking. The group is joined by two females, which he assumed were students like him. And Turner thinks one of the girls, who tells him that she's already graduated from another California school, is flirting with him. He said that they kissed briefly, and then they were separated. But he located her later and invited her back to his dorm room. Let's do a time check here. Turner was at a party at the dorm that was broken up around 11 p.m., he and some friends head to the Kappa Alpha party. There are drinking games, and he sees and interacts with other members of the swim team. He drinks another beer outside where he meets a girl, who we can assume is Emily Doe. When he returns inside the frat house, he locates Emily and dances with her. He will tell her that he likes her dancing, and invite her back to his dorm room. The sexual assault behind the dumpster... That's discovered by the Swedish students at approximately 1 a.m. So, from his initial contact with her to the sexual assault is less than 90 minutes. Emily awakens on a gurney in the hallway of a hospital, 
From drinking and dancing in her beige cardigan to scraped hands and bandages, her underwear gone, off in an evidence bag as she sorted through her memories of the previous evening. Now that Emily is awake, the hospital has papers for her to sign. The papers are labeled Rape Victim, and Emily's stomach is a tight, dry knot of misery and fear. Her neck itched, and when she rubbed it, she found dirt and pine needles. Her hair was full of pine needles. They were everywhere. With the paperwork signed, the medical team examines her, gloved fingers poking and probing her body. A kit is brought in, removed from its protective plastic bag, and swabs are taken from her vagina and rectum. This is to collect any presence of foreign DNA. The swabs are sent to the lab, and it will take months for them to be processed. A blue liquid, most likely toledine blue, was literally painted onto her labia and vulva, looking for abrasions which would respond to the chemical. Then a camera is brought in, and Emily's legs are spread, so several images can be recorded of her crotch. For evidence, they tell her. Then Emily is turned over and the process is repeated on her backside. A ruler is used to document the scrapes and bruises. The photo session complete, another nurse appears, this one bearing a small paper cup with pills and a styrofoam cup of water. A straw pokes out the top. Emily listens as the nurse explained that there were several pills she needed to take. Preventative antibiotics. I wonder if HIV was mentioned to her in those small hours of Sunday morning. Did the nurse speak of gonorrhea, bacterial vaginosis, chlamydia? These infections are commonly treated for when someone is the victim of a sexual assault. Emily's clothing was collected and not returned. Another plastic bag, this time for evidence. The dress, the sensible beige cardigan, her bra, her underwear. Emily was released from the hospital and clothing the hospital provided, a sweatshirt and scrub pants. It wouldn't be until she saw an article in the newspaper a day or two later that she learned the details. That two Stanford students, international students from Sweden, Peter Lars Johnson and Carl Frederick Arndt, were out on their bikes. And as they rode by the frat house where the party was held, they saw a man they would later learn was Brock Turner, behind a dumpster, hunched over Emily, thrusting his body against her still form. When the two called out to him, Turner ran away, leaving Emily splayed on her back, her bra pulled out of her dress, the skirt hiked above her waist, her underwear nearby, boots still on her feet. One man checked to see if Emily was alive, and the other chased after Turner, it was Johnson who caught a smiling Brock Turner and pinned him to the ground. Johnson said, What are you smiling for? Turner's clothing was not in disarray. His pants were pulled up and zipped. In Turner's retelling of events, he claimed that this was a consensual encounter. If this was a consensual encounter, why run? Why not wave them on because you and your lady are having a moment? If it was a consensual encounter, why have it on the ground behind a dumpster? Because this wasn't a romantic moment or a hookup. Emily wasn't Brock's lady. They weren't being intimate. She was unable to consent, and choosing this location for the interlude makes it appear that Turner understood that what he was doing was not okay. Okay.
Turner will insist that he was not running away from the two foreign students, that his stomach was upset and he was looking for a place to vomit. He didn't know why they were mad or why they were yelling at him. Turner stated that when they threatened him with a call to the police, he was glad the police were going to be called because this strange man had him pinned to the ground and wouldn't let him go. While Johnson held Turner and waited for law enforcement, Arndt attended to Emily, making sure she was breathing, pulling the skirt of her dress down and the bodice of her dress up, trying to cover her nakedness. Other students arrived and assisted in holding Turner while campus police were called. When the cops interviewed them at the scene, one of the two students who initially intervened was so upset by what he saw, by the condition that Emily was left in, mostly naked, legs splayed, and on the receiving end of an assault, that he was weeping. He needed time to compose himself before he could answer their questions. When Turner was taken into custody, he was interviewed by the police that morning where he told his side of the story. That he'd met her outside of the party. No, he didn't know her name. They'd started walking together, and then things became intimate. He admitted that he wouldn't recognize her if he saw her again. Turner's clothing was also collected and his body swabbed for DNA while he was at the police station. Later, his story changed. He said that he'd met Emily at the party and they'd danced, they'd had a few beers, and he'd invited her to his room. She agreed to go with him, but when they left the house, she slipped, skidding down the slope and landing near the dumpster. When he knelt down to make sure she was okay, they began kissing, with her rubbing his back and him pulling her dress aside to access her breasts. He said that he asked her permission to, quote, finger her, and she agreed, and the two engaged in, quote, dry humping. At some point during this encounter, Turner began feeling sick, like he'd vomit, an after-effect of the many beers he'd drunk that night. He stood up to find somewhere to throw up when he heard two men speaking a foreign language. The men began yelling at him, so he ran away. He didn't understand why they tackled him or why they were so angry. Emily's sister had another story. She had seen Turner at the party, and he'd approached her, twice. Each time he'd made a pass at her, leaning in for a kiss, and both times she pulled away from him. At no point during the party did she see Turner interact with her sister. Emily's story of the evening ends around midnight, when she made some calls to her friends and her boyfriend's cell phone. The nearly incoherent message she left for him would later be entered into evidence and played during the trial. When paramedics responded to the scene, Emily could lift her head to vomit and clear her airway on her own. She was rated 11 of 15 on the Glasgow Coma Scale. Someone who rated a 3 on the Coma Scale would be deeply unconscious, and someone who got a 15 would be wide awake and alert. The paramedics started an IV to hydrate her and transported Emily to the hospital. Sunday, January 18th, 2015. 19-year-old Brock Turner is arrested and booked into the Santa Clara County Jail on charges of attempted rape and penetration with a foreign object. His bail, $150,000, was posted that day and he was released. Both Brock Turner and Emily Doe had their blood alcohol levels tested. 
It was estimated that at 1 a.m., the approximate time of the assault, Turner was at 0.17% and Emily Doe at 0.22%. She was clearly intoxicated and unable to consent to any sexual contact, let alone the fingering that Brock inquired about. When questioned, Turner told law enforcement that he wasn't much of a drinker and never used drugs. When his phone was taken into evidence, a series of texts told another story, as did a 2014 arrest for underage drinking prior to a football game on campus. Turner would say that drinking beer is part of the college culture, and he was following the example set by other students, older students, students that were also on the swim team. He looked to his teammates for how he should behave and fit in on campus. When Monday arrived, Turner was packing his dorm room, planning his withdrawal from Stanford. Perhaps he thought that if he withdrew, he could avoid disciplinary action from the school. Tuesday, January 20th, 2015, Stanford University bans Brock Turner from campus. This is the harshest disciplinary action the university can take. On January 28th, Brock Turner is indicted on five charges. Rape of an intoxicated person, rape of an unconscious person, assault with intent to rape, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. In this case, the foreign object was Brock's hands. When DNA results came back in the fall, female DNA would be found on both of his hands and under his fingernails. February 2nd. Roughly two weeks after the incident, Brock Turner is arraigned on five charges and pleads not guilty across the board. In the spring of 2015, Turner is still swimming and still training. He has his eyes on the 2016 Olympics in Brazil. But on June 6th, he learns that he is no longer eligible for membership with USA Swimming because of their zero-tolerance policy on sexual misconduct. If you aren't a swimmer, USA Swimming is headquartered in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and they are the national governing body for competitive swimming in the United States. In addition to selecting swimmers for the Olympics, they oversee competitive swimming at swim clubs across the country. His removal from this organization meant that any dreams he had of swimming competitively at the national or Olympic levels are now over. In October of 2015, the DNA testing comes back. The first two charges, rape of an intoxicated person and rape of an unconscious person, are dropped because the DNA tests reveal that there was no genital-to-genital contact between Turner and the victim. Three charges remain, assault with intent to rape, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. Michelle Dauber, a Stanford University law professor and family friend of the victim, explained to the press that Emily Doe was not raped. She was sexually assaulted. And for those of you wondering what the difference is, well, it's the difference between being penetrated by a penis or penetrated by a finger. Because Brock Turner penetrated Emily Doe with his hands and not his penis, rape charges were dropped. In 2015, the state of California defined rape as, quote, an act of sexual intercourse. There are other criteria in the law about consent, consciousness, etc., 
But if the genitalia of the aggressor is not engaged, it's not rape. There are states that use the term sexual assault instead of rape to cover both rape and sexual assaults, such as what happened in this incident. At the end of 2015, Brock is back in Ohio, in his hometown of Oakwood, with his family. He's in counseling and diagnosed with depression. It's later revealed that he is prescribed Lexapro to help him deal with the stress of his situation. In March of 2016, Brock Turner goes on trial in Santa Clara County for the sexual assault of Emily Doe. The judge overseeing the trial is Stanford alum Aaron Persky, who, like Brock, was a student-athlete. Persky received his law degree from UC Berkeley. From 1997 until 2003, Persky worked for the Santa Clara District Attorney's Office and was appointed to the bench in 2003 by then-Governor Gray Davis. What's interesting here is that there isn't much coverage of the trial or the case itself. Emily's privacy is protected and no pictures of her or her family are released. Opening statements are offered on Thursday, March 17, 2016. As part of the People's Opening Statement, a voicemail left by Emily Doe about one hour before her assault is played for the jury. Her words are slurred and unfocused. The message is nonsensical. This is the woman that Brock Turner said agreed to go back to his dorm room, but opted instead for a sexual interlude behind a dumpster where her arms, elbows, and hands are torn up and bloodied by the rough ground. Meanwhile, the defense paints a picture of Brock as a good kid, a smart kid, and a talented athlete. His good grades at Stanford are mentioned as well. By 10.45 that morning, right after opening statements, several pictures of Emily Doe, naked on the ground, are shown to the court. On Friday, the court is shown pictures of Emily Doe's buttocks, so the jury can see the many scrapes and abrasions to that area. Another photograph is shown. This one has her bare bottom and a ruler, so the scale of her injuries can be determined. Also on Friday... Photographs of Emily's crotch are displayed in court, including one showing debris in her labia minora. A juror question would come in, asking exactly what the debris was. Another juror asked if the quality of the projected images could be improved to better show detail. If we can take a moment here to reflect. Emily was found on the ground, outside of a party. Her dress both hiked up and pulled down leaving her breasts and groin exposed. When she was taken to the hospital, she was examined, swabbed, and photographed, so the injuries she sustained and the trauma her body endured could be documented. More than a year later, these photos of her on the ground and these close-up pictures of her body are shown in court. Not only did strangers view these images, having to make note of what they were looking at so they could do their jobs as jurors, but her attorney, her parents, her sister, and her attacker. They also looked at the pictures. At her. In her nakedness and vulnerability and darkest hour. All because she had too much to drink at a party, and someone looked at her not as a person who needed help, or someone who needed a glass of water and a ride home, but they looked at her and saw an opportunity, a chance to satisfy their own needs either because Brock Turner wanted to be like the older guys on the swim team, hooking up with girls at parties, 
drinking beer and dancing on tables, or because Brock Turner was looking for sexual release from what he himself described as a stressful time, since the drinking that had become a regular part of his routine was not enough. During the trial, Turner's defense attorney will remind the jury that Brock thought Emily was conscious during their interaction, and if Brock fully believed that she was conscious, even if he was wrong, then the jury must find him not guilty. When the jury is sent to deliberate the fate of Brock Turner, they are given extensive instructions and ask for clarification on some points brought up during the trial. One of the questions is whether or not contact with the labia majora counts as penetration, and Judge Persky tells them that penetration of the genital or anal opening is penetration, that penetration of the external organs is enough for penetration to have taken place. And on March 30th, 2016, Brock Turner is found guilty by the jury, and a sentencing date of June 2nd, 2016 is set. As sentencing approaches, his family and attorney reach out to people who knew Brock, both high school staff and fellow students, asking them to write letters on his behalf, hoping to persuade the judge that Brock was a good kid who made an error in judgment. Four staff members from Oakwood High School agree to write letters for him. Nearly 40 letters would arrive on his behalf, from friends, family, former teammates, former girlfriends, and members of the community. Brock's father, Dan, a civilian Air Force employee, and his mother, Carr, a surgical nurse, both write letters to the judge in support of their son. Dan Turner's letter, where he describes the assault as, quote, 20 minutes of action, quickly goes viral. The letter goes on to talk about how Brock's appetite has decreased and his mood is diminished. Dan Turner is confident that if given the chance, Brock could educate other students in high school and college about the perils of drinking to excess and being sexually promiscuous. Mr. Turner also laid blame on the university and their culture of drinking and partying. The letter from Brock's mother was more direct. She asked that the judge show mercy on, quote, her beautiful son. In my opinion, the letter from Dan Turner, where he bemoans Brock's loss of appetite, and fears stern punishment for a sexual assault that he diminishes to, quote, 20 minutes of action, did far more harm to his son's case and reputation than it helped. During April and May, the probation department looked at the case. They speak with the victim, Emily Doe, and the perpetrator, Brock Turner. Emily is clear. Her priorities are that Turner accepts responsibility for what happened and receives counseling so that he does not do this to someone else. Her focus, per the probation report, was not on incarceration for Turner, but rehabilitation. Quote, I want him to be sorry and express remorse. I want him to be punished. But as a human, I just want him to get better. I don't want him to feel like his life is over, and I don't want him to rot away in jail. She wanted him to spend some time behind bars, but not for years and years. She wanted him to accept responsibility for what he did that night, to admit to the choices that he made. Judge Persky read this report, and I am certain that it influenced him when he sentenced Turner to six months in the county jail, three years of probation, which he can serve at home in Ohio, 
and that Turner must register as a sex offender. Many people were angry at this sentence. They were furious that he wasn't given, quote, real time. If he'd received the maximum for all three charges, he would have been sentenced to 14 years in prison. Even with the light jail sentence, the sex offender label will follow him the rest of his life, and it will limit where Turner can work, socialize, and reside. Emily Doe expressed her frustration at the small amount of jail time in her letter to the court. After reading the defendant's report, I am severely disappointed and feel that he has failed to exhibit sincere remorse or responsibility for his conduct. I fully respected his right to a trial, but even after 12 jurors unanimously convicted him of three felonies, all he has admitted to doing is ingesting alcohol. Someone who cannot take accountability for his actions does not deserve a mitigating sentence. It is deeply offensive that he would try and dilute rape with a suggestion of promiscuity. By definition, rape is the absence of promiscuity. Rape is the absence of consent, and it perturbs me deeply that he can't even see that distinction. The probation officer factored in that the defendant is youthful and has no prior convictions. In my opinion, he is old enough to know what he did was wrong. The victim has written a heart-wrenching 12-page letter to Turner that's gone viral. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen. I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice. Until today. Emily Doe and her family were not alone in their outrage over the sentence. There was shock and disbelief from people and professionals from across the nation. This is a brief clip from Ted Poe, a Republican from Texas, who spoke about the case on the floor of the Texas House of Representatives. Mr. Speaker, I was a prosecutor and a criminal court judge in Texas for over 30 years. I met a lot of rape victims and learned how these attacks sometimes devastate their lives. This judge got it wrong. There is an archaic philosophy in some courts that sin ain't sin as long as good folk do it. In this case, the court and the defendant's father wanted a pass for the rapist because he was a big-shot swimmer. The judge should be removed. The rapist should do more time for the dastardly deed that he did that night. This arrogant defendant has appealed the sentence. I hope the appeals court does grant the appeal and make it right and overturn the pathetic sentence and give him the punishment he deserves. As a country, Mr. Speaker, we must change our mentality and make sure that people recognize sexual assault and rape for the horrible crimes that they are. Mr. Speaker, the punishment for rape should be longer than a semester in college. While the trial is long over and the jail sentence complete, neither he nor his victim will ever truly leave January 18, 2015 in the past. It is branded on Emily's skin and on Brock's name. I must express my admiration for Emily Doe, her grace, eloquence, and ability to be justifiably outraged at what happened to her, while still having empathy for her attacker, speaks volumes of her as a person. I hope that she is healing and able to find joy. Meanwhile, in Ohio, at Oakwood High School, Brock Turner's name is on the Lumberjack Swim and Dive Team Athletic Board. The records he set while part of a medley relay 
the 200 free relay, and his time swimming solo in the 500 free were still there as of 2016. I hope that they are still on the board at Oakwood today. I hope that students know who Brock is and what he did, so they don't follow in his footsteps, selfishly inflicting misery on others while damaging their own future. I believe there is hope for Brock Turner, who, on August 1st, celebrated his 22nd birthday. Perhaps between visits to the sheriff's department for the required sex offender check-ins and his parents selling their home and moving to a new community, one where he is less well-known, the importance of knowing your own limits and respecting the limits of others will sink in for him. When he was interviewed by the parole board, he spoke of studying electrical engineering at a school closer to his home in Ohio. I hope that he is in school and that he's making good use of the opportunity. I also hope, fervently, that someday Brock Turner becomes a father and has a daughter of his own, and that one day she tells him that she's going to a party at a fraternity house. I wonder what he will say to her then. I would like to thank Kim Fritz from the Already Gone Podcast Discussion Group for giving this episode a name. Thanks to each of you who weighed in with ideas, feedback, and suggestions for this episode. My goal was to present this story in an honest, respectful way, while still sharing the important, albeit uncomfortable, details of the case. If you need help or support with this difficult topic, please visit www.rainn.org or call 1-800-656-4673. If you would like to talk about the case further, please join us on the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. The group is private, so your friends and family won't see what you're talking about. Ask to join, and myself or one of our lovely moderators will add you to the group. August will continue the back-to-school theme with other cases that take place in schools or on campus. I would like to thank our Patreon supporters, Shannon, Amanda, Jill, Heather, Jessica, The Gone Cold Podcast, Suhail, Ruth, Holly, Linda, The Now American History Podcast, and Elena. I appreciate your support of the show. If you are considering joining Patreon to support this or other amazing podcasts, it's worth checking out. There are some great rewards, including bonus content, only available to Patreon supporters. If you have comments, suggestions, or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic for the show, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can also find the show on Twitter at alreadygonepod. Please check out this week's sponsor. You can get your first series book free with free shipping from chatbooks.com slash podcast. Use code GONE at checkout. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.
You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. 